This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. We'll check in with Caitlin McConnell. She's the creator of the website Ozarks Alive. Find out what uh, is going on down there and what she's been up to. Uh, We'll also talk to MU Extension about thinking about systems when it comes to your gardening. A follow-up breast exams can cost Missouri patients hundreds of dollars. The House has passed a bill that aims to ease some of that financial burden. And at the center of controversy in the Missouri Senate this week, Senator Mike Moon's bill, the Missouri Safe Act, which is a bill that would charge doctors and health care providers with child abuse for coercing anyone under 18 years of age to undergo a gender transition. Anthony Morbeth talks with Senator Moon. Senate Bill 49, otherwise known as the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act or Safe Act, uh, would prohibit hormone therapy and also surgical procedures on minor children. And it would provide cause of action for those who are harmed by any of those procedures. So obviously, this was initially introduced earlier in the 2023 legislative session with uh, uh, a, a Republican coalition of both House and Senate members introducing this. So uh, why was this initially introduced and, and why are you, you looking to pass this? Well, um, a few years ago, I was um, uh, met by a, an Arkansas representative, Robin Lundstrom, who had uh, proposed the bill in Arkansas, and uh, she encouraged me to do it here. And honestly, I really hadn't thought about what uh, is happening to our minor children across uh, the country until that time. And as I looked at uh, the situation more in detail, I found that there was potential for harm for minor children in Missouri if it's not happening already. And then we had the revelation that occurred just uh, about a month or so ago when the whistleblower Jamie Reed, an employee of Washington University's Transgender Center, revealed through an article and also a an affidavit, a sworn affidavit, of things that were happening uh, in that uh, university's clinic. Uh, I thought that uh, harm is being done to children in Missouri, and uh, it's time that we take action against it. So that obviously goes right into the events that took place last week. It looked like this bill was on the perfect. Well, actually, I guess it technically still is on the perfection calendar. And that is uh, the the part of uh, the session where they debate lawmakers debate on the bill. And it turned into a two day uh, basically filibuster and. Um, As a result of that, it led to the Senate uh, adjourning and going into spring break a day early. So with that being said, I would be of the belief, and this is why I'm bringing this up, that uh, lawmakers on the both the right and left have been trying to come up with some sort of a compromise on this, uh, what you could call controversial piece of legislation. What sort of compromises are you guys negotiating and working out? Well, if I may, I'd like to backtrack even a week before that. February 27th, the bill was first up on the perfection calendar. Now, there are two calendars. There's there's a formal and an informal. And on the formal perfection calendar, bills have to be taken up in order. And in this particular case, on the Monday, 27th of February, the bill was first up. Uh, And on the informal calendar, if a bill is placed there, then the bills can be taken up in any, any order. 
So on Monday the 27th, about one hour before session began, I was approached by a member of the Republican leadership, and I was um, strongly encouraged to lay the bill over. And what laying the bill over would result in is the bill being moved from the formal calendar to the informal calendar, and no guarantee the bill would be taken up again. So after contemplating that and meeting with several uh, other senators and other individuals, I decided not to lay the bill over. And so when the session began, the bill was called up, and I proceeded to, to bring the bill before the body and introduce the bill. And uh, subsequently, uh, the floor majority leader inappropriately took the floor from me. And I can explain that more in detail if you'd like to hear what happened. But essentially, um, after the floor was taken, I was admonished for not following the leadership's request. And then the uh, adjournment motion was made, and we stopped business that day. And so then fast forward to the day in question that you're speaking of this past week. Uh, the bill was taken up on Tuesday. Uh, we uh, had caucus meetings with Republicans and uh, also meetings with uh, Democrats who were opposed to the bill. And the compromise language essentially said that the bill would require counseling sessions before puberty blockers would be introduced. The Democrats did not like that because they want puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, meaning testosterone for girls and estrogen for boys, to be uh, introduced and administered any time. And, and also the surgical procedures could be introduced at age 16. And I'm totally against both of those options because the, uh, the harm done surgically uh, uh, is, is evident, as um, is stated by uh, some individuals we had come to the Capitol two or three weeks beforehand giving firsthand testimony of what they had gone through and uh, the long-term effect that they are experiencing as a result of it. So those compromises or um, propositions were, were not acceptable by me. And, of course, the outright bans were not acceptable by the Democrats. What then would be the best course of action for moving forward with this piece of legislation? Because I would have to assume lawmakers don't want to basically end debate and go straight to a vote. Uh, what What is the best course of action for moving forward that would basically uh, appease both the Republicans and the Democrats in the Senate? If we truly want to protect children, minor children, from the harms done chemically or surgically, the only course of action is to stand firm and to demand the prohibitions of hormone therapy, and surgical procedures for minor children. Uh, to get to that end, either the Democrats have to sit down or we have to force the issue. And um, some people call forcing the issue the nuclear option. That can be done by um, either conceding, which is, which is not uh, on my uh, agenda, and or offering the PQ motion, which stands for a previous question, and that essentially brings a vote the bill at hand. So those are really the only two options that we have before us. We're talking with Republican State Senator Mike Moon of District 29. He is the sponsor of Senate Bill 49, the Missouri Safe Act, as it's called. And uh, so Democrats have called this discriminatory. 
they've added that they don't want to be making health decisions for kids. So my question is, uh, first off, obviously your comments in response to that, but also uh, why in a, a situation like this do you think the state should get involved? Children are not the age, at the age of majority, and so they require either parents to protect them, or if the parents are not able or unwilling to protect them, then the state has laws that um, then offer that protection. In this particular case where medical communities are offering what they deem as care, which is actually mutilation and uh, butchering of bodies and introducing chemicals that castrate or cause sterility in young people. Uh, and in addition, it's not known what the long-term effects are. And uh, there's one particular drug called Lupron. It's used as a puberty blocker. I, I think our listeners need to realize that this drug is also used to castrate sex offenders in prison. Why would we offer that uh, um, a, an unapproved drug to children, knowing full well that it can cause irreparable harm to them? I, I, I don't see that as, as care. You can't call that medical care. It's, uh, it's harming children, and we have an opportunity as state legislatures uh, to, um, to stop it. And I, I think that's obviously what the SAFE Act is intending to do. And now we just need 24 Republicans and firm on the decision to protect children. Show me the day. If you talk and they will hear you. Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey. He knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? 
Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a city awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. We're back on Show Me Today. A future guest is Caitlin McConnell, the creator of the website Ozarks Alive that captures and preserves Ozark culture. Ashley Bird checks in with Caitlin about her recent work. It's been going great. Um, you know, it's uh, so much fun being able to go out and about and get to meet people and learn about what's going on. because It seems like it's changing every day. Uh, you know, see change in all parts of the country, but especially here in the Ozarks, it seems like things are evolving pretty fast. And you've not run out of stories yet. I have not, and I hope that that never happens. <laughs> There's so much, so much to learn still. Well, um, one of the ways I've learned that you can kind of share all this information is you not only on the website, which is Ozarks Alive, but you also compile a, a kind of guidebook. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, you know, when I began Ozarks Alive back in 2015, something I would get asked from time to time was for suggestions on where people could go and, you know, do things to really experience the Ozarks on a new level. And I really kind of got the idea after a while that there might be a need for a, you know, concentrated uh, list of suggestions, if you will, of, of things that people might want to go and do and see. And so I published a guidebook. The first one came out in 2019. Um, good or bad, I don't know. It came out right before the pandemic. And so especially a lot of the things that were drivable, I think I heard from people, you know, it was an excuse to get out and, and go in the car and social distance and all those things we did back then. Um, but people, thankfully, the reaction was so um, positive that I decided to publish a, a second volume last year. And so late last year, in 2022, uh, second volume came out. And basically, in both these books, they're completely different from each other, but they complement one another. And they're basically, you know, lists of stories, many stories about different places throughout Southwest Missouri and Northwest Arkansas um, that people can go and feel like they've had an Ozarks experience. And the, you know, categories are varied. Um, some are outdoors, some are food related, some are music related or cultural based. Um, I tried to do a little bit of different things for everybody. And this uh, can be ordered online on your website. Is there any other way we can get it? Probably for folks outside of the Ozarks, that's the easiest way. There are a few stores in the Springfield area, um, or Southwest Missouri, rather, area. But um, it's the easiest way is to just order it online from okay. Ozarks Alive. Okay. So you're always compiling stories. You're always out in the field. Um Want to mention a, a couple of, of, of new stories that you've run across that you'd like to share with our Show Me Today audience? Yeah. Um, you know, something that has become of greater interest to me, really, I'd say over the last year, is quilting. And it's kind of ironic because I've never actually quilted in my life other than 
I guess you could count the nine patch quilt I did when I was about 10. Um, but as an adult, I've never done it. But I've been become fascinated by the tradition involved in a lot of quilting circles throughout the Ozarks, both, um, you know, the artistry and the, the tradition of being able to make one, but also the tradition of people gathering and being, you know, part of a community and what that means today. And this came to light, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now, when I did a story about a group of quilters in the tiny little community of Raider, Missouri, which is down in Webster County. Um, for point of reference, it's about an hour away from Springfield um, to the north. And the reason that this attracted my attention especially was because the quilting group has been meeting since 1936. And 1936. One, wow. So they, 1936. And wow. <laughs> they passed this along. It was mind-blowing to me, too. Yeah. They, so they, it's yeah. not the same people. Clearly, they've passed this down from generation to generation. They have, except that the thing that, you know, I, I was impressed before I ever arrived that day. Um, but the thing that really blew my mind when I got there was there was a lady. Well, let me back up for a second. The impetus for this group starting was that the community experienced a devastating tornado the same year, 1936. And people decided they wanted to do something to help each other. And so initially, the first iteration of this club was begun. It was under a different name, but, but the same kind of concept ha was, was taking place. And that group, one of the ladies of the, who's a member of the club today, she's in her 90s, was going to those meetings with her mother. And so technically, you could say that one member in particular has been attending nearly its entire existence, uh, except for a few years when she didn't live in the area. But going back to the 1930s, it was it was very amazing. So how's this quilting group coming along now? You know, kind of like um, a, a lot of traditions, unfortunately, it's it's needing new members. Um, you know, when I, I was there, I think there were six quilters and, you know, several of them, had been involved for a very long time. Uh, there was another member there who's the third generation of her family to be involved. But, you know, like I said, like we're seeing in these really remote areas, you're not having the same number of people step up um, to join. And hopefully that'll change. Like it's, that's, there's always hope that more people will come and keep it going. It's still going right now. I hope it keeps going for a long time, but you know, it is different than um, maybe in the past when our small rural communities had these pipelines of people who were kind of um, joining things and being involved, uh, you know, on an ongoing basis. That must be a little bittersweet as you're chronicling these things, you're, you're gathering photographs, you're archiving uh, for Ozarks Alive as a writer. Your photographs are amazing on the site. Um, Thank you. That these may not be here in 20 years. You know, that's got to be bittersweet, isn't it? It's, you know, it is. And that's really one of the key reasons I do this. You know, as we, we said at the top of this uh, segment, changing times are happening every day. You know, it's it's always been that way. It's not just that it's it's a now thing, but it feels like these traditions are maybe evolving in a different way than they used to in the past, evolving in a way that they might not exist in the future. And to me, that's part of this race against time to try to at least document, you know, uh, what I can so that 20 years from now, if these things don't exist or certain ones don't exist, at least we have a record of it having been here. 
I guess the question for me is now that we have social media and anyone in the world can go to Ozarks Alive and learn something about what's what's going on there. Um, you hope that it would also be a way to uh, strengthen the traditions themselves. You know, there's, uh, you know, a lot of things involve, you know, group participation and things like that. But maybe a hope is to uh, be a resource as well. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, I think it's some of the traditions we have, um, you know, they don't work the same in the world that we have today. I mean, speaking of quilting circles specifically, I mean, a lot of the ones I've written about or visited are generally, um, you know, comprised of people who've retired or maybe in some of them people who didn't work outside the home and they meet during the daytime. And so when we live in a world where most people work um, during weekdays, you know, it doesn't translate the same as maybe it did 50 years ago. And so, you know, how will those, and I'm not blanket stating that everybody is like that, but, you know, there are just elements that are a little different than what our normal lives are based around today. And so I don't know, um, you know, how much I'll be able to affect change in that way. But to your point about being a resource, one uh, particular example that comes to mind um, from a couple of months ago, which was really cool, was I was reached out to by a gentleman from the UK who had discovered the Ozarks uh, through a musician that he'd been started following from many years ago who uh, spent a lot of time in the 1950s and 60s and 70s recording Ozark musicians. And this man in the UK had stumbled across him and become interested, and he found Ozarks alive. And he began reading about, you know, different parts of the Ozarks and just became fascinated by the culture here and the unique elements of it. And so that makes me feel really good. I mean, I always want people locally to be able to understand and appreciate more about the region. But due to the advent of the Internet and social media, you know, maybe people in other parts of the planet are also becoming more aware of what is going on here in the Ozarks. Absolutely. Caitlin McConnell, uh, we love following you as you venture out to record and write and photograph uh, Ozark's life and legacies. Uh, again, your your guidebook is at Ozark's Alive. Uh, what is the website again? The, Oz- the website is ozarksalive.com, and the guidebooks are called Passports to the Ozarks, and they're accessible on the website. Caitlin, we always enjoy talking with you. Thank you so much. Can't wait to hear about your next adventure. Caitlin McConnell of Ozarks Alive on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past the turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our our roads. It's It's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You try All the talks we've had over the years, 
including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control. And priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No. But you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you're ever concerned about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Welcome back to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack, and it's time for our weekly visit with MU Extension. And uh, we got a new voice, a new person joining us. We're going to break them in. Uh, Eli Isley is a horticulture field specialist in St. Louis and St. Charles counties. Uh, first time we have a chance to talk. It's uh, nice to meet you, Eli. Nice to meet you, too, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. All right. So you picked uh, an interesting topic Um and I don't know much about this at all. And, of course, as people have listened to our segments about working in gardens, uh, you can tell that I, I don't have green thumbs. And some of the questions I come up with are, are kind of crazy. And I'm sure I get the side eye and kind of goofy looks on the other end of the line from some of our other regulars. But um, you want to talk about systems thinking for sustainable gardens. In simple terms, for myself and, and our listeners, what does systems thinking mean? 
So uh, simply uh, systems thinking, you can think of it as observing relationships and the impact of those changes on those relationships. So once you, once you can start observing the relationships and seeing the impacts, then we can recognize and analyze the interconnections within the whole. So basically, by understanding, by observing your garden and seeing how things change and thinking about what's happening outside of your garden and then trying to understand what's causing those changes. Now, are these changes, is this just from uh, in-season, you know, like how things have changed, say, when you start planting in in March to what's going on in in July, or is this a thing over months or years? Uh, You're kind of looking at, hey, I kind of noticed that... You know, a few years ago, this used to happen with my plants. Now I'm starting to notice this more. Is it is it more narrowed, or is, are you thinking more big picture when we're talking about systems thinking? So I think some of it definitely is to look at the big picture. You know, try and observe all those changes, whether it be whether it be temporally over time from five years ago or ten years ago, or a short time frame, as you mentioned, between March, April, and then July, August, and then. Say, say if you're observing everything that's happening in July, right, when your first tomato comes on. Um, and if you can look at that over a period of 10 years, maybe you can start to see some patterns. You can observe the relationships between. Maybe you can record the weather and what that's like and then see when your first tomato comes on. And then you can see how these things may relate to each other. Eas- uh, Eli Isley is uh, from MU Extension. We're talking about systems thinking. Is there a way to... Uh, to go back and and look at at past weather, um, and maybe maybe people have kept a journal or or just if they've thought of you know I had really good years, uh, you know like three years ago I had a great garden uh, it's been down a little bit uh, is is there a way that you can kind of go back or when you start with systems thinking do you kind of have to start from this date and moving forward? So I think I think it'd be great to start with this date and moving forward and okay. a great way to do that is with. Uh, journaling um, but especially with uh, if you're interested in observing the weather and seeing how it changes the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association part of our federal government um, they have weather stations where they uh, log the weather and it's all available online if you were to spend a lot of time poking around you can in my previous position I was looking at some work uh, on cacao and time of year for propagation, and I was able to look back at records easily 20 years back, and I think you can probably go back probably 100 years with some of the temp- temperature records easily. Yeah. Well, Eli, I know that uh, climate change has uh, has been a huge topic. I mean, we've, we've talked about it now for a, a number of years. As, as you've looked back as a horticulturist and, and a field specialist with MU Extension, have the temperatures changed uh, yeah, I believe the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think the effects that we're seeing and we're expecting to see is uh, even if you, as you've noticed this winter, right? We didn't have a whole lot of cold events over this winter compared to uh, maybe sometime in the 1980s. It's a pretty stark contrast. But then we're expecting, uh, maybe people have noticed in the summers too, that the summertime nights are not cooling down as they used to. So we're expecting to have less cooling events in summer nights and to have more days above 95 or 100 degrees. That's that's the prediction. And I, I think people um, can see it in their lifetimes easily. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what, what makes it tough for some people too, because I, you know, I look back... Uh, 
on a on a particular summer. I think this was a hot summer that we just had. I mean, there were there were days where it was well over 100 and it felt horrible. And then you know it might seem like two years ago, I was like, you know what, we didn't have that bad of a summer. It's it's a perception thing. Um, and and I think that maybe is is tough for some people to grasp when they start thinking about their garden too. But but it's a, an opportunity though to do this systems thinking to kind of really mark down what the weather has been, and and then that can help your gardening moving forward. That's the yeah, whole idea. So it, yeah. Yeah. Yes, you're right. That that's the whole idea. Sorry to interrupt. Um, with the if you're if you're able to you know start to take some notes and keep some journals and then you can you know you can take some photo journals um you can you can look back and see uh just using tomatoes as an example like last year was a pretty poor tomato year in the eastern part of the state and i think a lot of it had to do with how wet and cool our spring was and how long it lasted and then it seemed like all of a sudden july 1st hit and it just got hot and dry for the rest of the summer and uh, people just didn't have a have a great year and so if you can record um what's happening with the weather um as an example, that could help you, you know, think about the whole system and what you might need to adapt or how you might want to change in the future your garden plans. Eli Isley is with MU Extension. We're talking about systems thinking for sustainable gardens. And for most people listening to Show Me Today, small to medium gardens around the house, um, you know, probably more listeners have gardening as a, as a hobby, uh, more so than a livelihood. What's a, a basic... Um, easy way to get started with this systems thinking in terms of keeping track of stuff so that it doesn't become too overbearing for someone. Yeah, so I think I think one really easy thing to do now that everyone has a smartphone um, is just to uh, pick a day and pick a spot in your yard or a few of them and go out there at, would say, noon every day and take a picture from there facing the same way. And then you can go and you can easily look over the season, right? Look at 18 or 20 photos and see how it changes. And then you can start to get an idea of the system over time, how that might change. And that's like a simple way to start journaling or mapping by doing that. Um, I think another way to get started with systems thinking is just to spend some time um, changing your perspective. Consider a change in viewpoints and uh, try and think about it from another perspective and maybe that'll help you understand what is happening. Can you give me an example? Um, Sure. So perhaps you uh, have a higher uh, incidence of uh, pests in your garden than you used to, and you um, you don't understand why why that is happening. And maybe you can try and uh, look at it from what's happening in your surrounding area. And maybe you live in an area where there's a lot of row crops, and you hadn't thought about how row crop farmers are changing the way that they grow and the increased use of. Uh, pesticide treatments on seeds, which I think lowers the amount of insects uh, in the environment, which will lower the amount of beneficial insects. So there's more opportunities for negative insects to head to your garden where maybe you aren't treating as much. Eli, is there any place on the MU Extension website where people can learn more about systems thinking? Um, unfortunately, um, I don't think that there there is just yet. Um, some of this information that I'm referencing to came from uh, Cornell, the land-grant university from New York State. Yeah, okay. So to summarize, what people can start doing is just taking some photos, just kind of journal journaling how their garden is progressing this year and, and follow along for the next uh, few years moving forward. 
It's a good start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good start. And you know, challenge, challenge your assumptions. Challenge, you know, the the way the way uh, maybe you were taught to garden by uh, someone else, or the way you've been doing things. And you know, try and think where your where your problems may be coming from, or not even where they're coming from. What you can do to address it. You know, I don't think that this is the same as your uh, grandpa's garden from the 1980s. I know that mine's a lot different than the one I grew up with. Yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, Eli Isley from MU Extension out of the Saint. Lewis and St. Charles County offices. Uh, I think we'll talk at the end of this month, early part of April, too, about uh, managing organic matter in your garden. I think that's on the list here, too. So we'll catch up again soon. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No, thanks. I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Meet Keith, loving dad, board game champ, bus driving pro. I drive 65,000 miles in my bus each year. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. Like how there are some things I simply can't see. On my route the other day, a car tried to sneak past me and ends up right in my blind spot. I turned slowly, so accident avoided. But no car should be in the blind spot for a 40,000-pound bus. It's It's our our roads. roads. It's It's our our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Hi, Grandma. Can Nina come over for dinner? Sure. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma! If anyone ever does, I want you to say, no, I have too much respect for my family and I don't want to get in trouble. I promise, Grandma. They really do hear you. For tips on what to say, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our roads. It's It's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alicine can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Welcome back to Show Me Today. Follow-up breast exams can cost Missouri patients hundreds of dollars. The State House has passed a bill 
to ease the financial burden on patients. Elisa Nelson talks to the bill's sponsor, State Representative Brenda Shields of St. Joe. The House bill for for this particular thing requires insurance companies to cover any diagnostic testing after a um, for breast cancer if a screening mammogram has been completed and they notice something on that screening mammogram that that next round of testing would be covered by insurance as well. So any diagnostic imaging, ultrasounds, that kind of thing, any of that. that that's correct. So it would maybe start with a diagnostic mammogram. It could be an, an ultrasound or it could be an MRI depending upon what they see. So talk to me about why this bill is important. Well, you know, I believe that that many women um, sometimes let life get in the way and they don't necessarily always go and have their yearly exams. But when they have their yearly exam and their doctor says to them, you know, I think that we see something. I would like to go ahead and do a diagnostic test. I think that time and money can get in the way. And if they know that they, they, the doctor says you're going to have a fee to do this diagnostic testing, I think that anytime families spend money, it's always a family decision. They have to talk about it. And it inhibits women from being able to make that appointment at that time that the doctor says, I think we need to do a diagnostic test. We, uh, we believe next year alone there will be 5,600 women in the state of Missouri diagnosed with breast cancer. And sadly, 820 women will die. Of a breast can- of breast cancer this year in Missouri, that's a startling number. I think about the um, children that would no longer have a mom. Um, I think about the husbands that would no longer have a wife, and and the parents that would no longer have a daughter, because we did not allow diagnostic testing to be covered without a copayment and insurance. Do other states have stuff like this in place that helps to ease this burden? Yes, absolutely. This legislation has passed in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Colorado, as well as Illinois. So um, Missouri won't be the first, but it wouldn't be the last if we pass it. So you're talking a mix of... Republican and Democratic states. And I I think that's important to point out. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, conservative states, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, all very conservative states have passed this piece of legislation. And eight other states have also introduced this legislation. Okay, so this is uh, an issue that's gaining momentum, really. Okay, so let's talk about, um, you made some comments about how this would actually save in healthcare costs. Can you talk about that? Right. So in Missouri, um, 16% of women that have a screening mammogram will be asked to go ahead and have a diagnostic testing. So we're not talking about a large pool of women. We're talking about 16% of women that have a screening mammogram. And we believe nationally, because healthcare costs are so expensive, by catching it early and being able to um, determine very small care that's needed or that really it's nothing at all, that $26 billion a year can be saved nationally by doing screening mammograms. Talk to me a little bit more about that in terms of, are you talking from the consumer side only, from the healthcare side? Where would that savings occur? The, the, the savings would, would happen, not from the consumer side, from the national healthcare um, would be a savings of $26 billion. Got it. Annually. Because we have to think, cancer treatment is incredibly expensive. So if we can catch it early, reduce the amount of cancer treatment that, that someone would need, or maybe none at all with, you know, maybe a lumpectomy or something like that, to instead, when a, a patient waits for a year, 
um, from when they've had one screening mammogram to maybe the next screening mammogram, and then we find out that cancer has grown. I haven't met a single person who isn't wanting to go into the fight to beat cancer, and that becomes very expensive. And so this could also have an impact on our Medicaid roles, or at least our Medicaid costs, then. Well, we'll, we'll have an impact on our Medicaid costs, but cancer treatment can become so expensive that that people move to the Medicaid roles because they have spent all the resources that they have. So I believe that this legislation will also keep people off of Medicaid. Okay, good point to make. Uh, and, and then now the other side, uh, during debate, State Representative Doug Ritchie had talked about this would actually increase health care costs. Do you know where he's getting that from and any other arguments that he made that you want to uh, talk about as well? I don't know the facts of, of his. I know what, what, what he believes is he believes is this becomes a, a covered benefit that he believes that the cost of insurance will go up because it would become a covered benefit. But I will disagree because I believe of this $26 billion a year savings that we will have. Now, our insurance companies, um, you buy insurance, it's a year-to-year contract. And um, so if you're an insurance company that covers this, next year um, you could lose that patient as someone who who purchases insurance from you because their company has gone with a different company that provides your employee benefit of insurance. But if we mandate this across all insurance companies, then we will all see that savings of that $26 billion, and there will be no hesitation for insurance companies to cover it because they'll be able to benefit from that cost savings. State Representative Brenda Shields of St. Joe joining Show Me Today to talk about her bill that would um, ease the financial burden on Missouri patients who need a secondary breast exam if uh, there is a potential problem on found on a mammogram. I want to mention something on, um, uh, there was a Facebook post on our page um, about this particular bill. Someone said that there are nonprofits out there that will cover the cost of the initial, the secondary breast exam if you don't qualify for insurance, or I'm sorry, if you do not have insurance. That's just people that don't have insurance. So two questions, are are there, do you know of nonprofits out there who cover uh, those who actually have insurance, um, but want to help out in covering these costs? And your bill is everyone, right? It doesn't matter if you have insurance or not. This is everyone. This is insurance. So, so So screening mammograms are now required to be covered. Um, by insurance companies. The state of Missouri um, mandated insurance companies to cover screening mammograms in the early 90s. And I can remember when I was able to get my first um, mammogram because that was covered by my insurance company. So this is not something new that the legislative body has done. Um, But there are people without insurance and there are not-for-profits that do cover those screening mammograms. So once again, this will become an insurance company um, requirement to cover the cost, the full cost of a diagnostic mammogram. And we know that once um, insurance companies are covered, then other companies will fall in place. You know, those that are self-insured, they'll fall in place to to cover these diagnostic. That's exactly what happened with screening mammograms. And in the future, there might be not-for-profits that help cover the diagnostic, um, the diagnostic screening. There might be some out there now. I'm not. I'm not aware if there is or isn't. I know in my community, 
there are not-for-profits that, that cover the cost of a screening mammogram. Is there anything else that you think is important to mention about this bill that we haven't already covered? Well, I just think that, that we have to remember that, that, that all people live busy lives. But I think if, if women know that without, um, that they have to pay a fee for the diagnostic test, when there's something discovered on their screening mammogram and the doctor calls and they want to, um, the doctor wants to make that appointment at that time and, and the female, if she knows she has a cost, she's going to want to consult with her husband. How can we do it? And I think that, that time can get away from us and it might be another year before they do their screening mammogram that they realize that they never made an appointment for that other test their doctor wanted. If they can make that appointment at the time that it's determined that they need a diagnostic test and they know they can make that appointment without any fee, I think that that will really be of a benefit to everybody um, in Missouri and, and, as I said, those parents, those children, because that cancer can be found early, if it is cancer, and, and treatment can be, be begin immediately. Um, I see this as a pro-life bill. That's that's what I consider this. Yes. Is, is that how you market it? It's like it a is, pro-life it bill? It is a pro-life bill. You know, and, and, I, and I think, so I think that there are people who like would like everything covered, but I think that we, you know, buy insurance with with no copayment. But I think what we know about breast cancer is how quickly it grows, how quickly it spreads, and that we can, and that we have screening mammograms. We need to complete the job because no screening mammogram is complete unless a diagnostic mammogram or some other type of test is able to be found to determine if it's cancer or not. So next step for this bill is the Missouri Senate. So that's where further debate on the bill will take place. And State Representative Brenda Shields of St. Joe joining Show Me Today. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Hey, hope you enjoyed our program for Anthony Morabith, Elisa Nelson, and Ashley Bird. I'm Bill Pollock, and we'll be back with you again Friday. Enjoy the rest of your day. Show me today.